Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Most people do not excuse or attempt to rationalize domestic violence, but interestingly, some cultures do allow it, and even in our own culture, those who do it or those who are the victims of it at times are very good at rationalizing it. Joining us today is Dr. Ryan Hall to help us better understand some of these issues. Dr. Hall, thank you for being with us. Thank you for asking me to talk on this topic. One of the notions that came to mind as I was preparing for this interview is that there is as much the topic of the culture of domestic violence as it is the understanding of the mindset of the culture of rationalization. But let's start in a more general manner. Domestic violence is not always physical. It's not always violent. It is often psychological. How and when does arguing or disagreeing transform into psychological domestic violence? It becomes a very fine line. Every couple I know at some point in time will have an argument, will have a disagreement, will say something that they may regret or may have been harsher than what they should have said. So you, you want to be careful not to make every fight or every outburst pathologic in domestic violence. But usually when you're talking about emotional abuse, there's a very controlling aspect to it. And the control will be there even when there aren't moments of peak emotion. And there'll be kind of a chronic belittlement, uh, but the whole point behind the belittlement is to gain control of the individual. Not every couple who's bickering is an emotional domestic violence, but when it is part of the overall picture of one partner having a clear power and balance and subjugating the other one, that's where the emotional aspects of domestic violence comes in. And the belittling is, again, further used to then allow more aggressive physical abuse to occur to limit the ability of the person to leave or feel they have the capability. of. What are the statistics about domestic violence? Is it on the rise? Is it evening out? Do we have any good sense about that? It's hard to know. And as was brought up in the political debates by Senator Henry Reid, he said one of the reasons we have to pass certain legislation is to stop domestic violence because of the poor economy. And, and I know he took a lot of heat for that comment, and somewhat rightfully so, somewhat not. But there are cycles and there are outside factors that can influence it. So when there are downturns in the economy, it does happen more often. Also, when certain sporting events come around, such as the Super Bowl, there's been noted to be spikes in it. But when you're taking a very longitudinal approach, when I most recently reviewed the Florida statistics on domestic violence, there has been a slight uptick recently. And again, is that due to the economy? Is that due to changes in immigration or more people moving into the state? It's hard to know the exact cause, but it does ebb and flow. And there does seem to be a bit of an increase recently. Is it across multiple cultures? There have been several researchers who've tried to answer that question. And what it comes down to is every culture can have domestic violence in it. So I want to make it clear that we shouldn't assume because someone's from one culture or not that they could or couldn't be a victim. Every culture has it. The problem is, is a lot of times when it's reported, it's what's reported to the police. So we think that our understanding and the statistics we have are actually lower than the actual occurrence. When you're talking about different groups, you also have to look at, are they immigrants? Have they been here? What's the acculturation like? Do they speak the language? And are we, are we missing a lot of people because they can't report it, are fearful to report it due to other circumstances? But it does occur in all groups, and depending on your group, there may be different likelihood of reporting it or how comfortable you are with it. 
And domestic violence seems, as a general term, not to overlap with child abuse, although technically speaking, they are very much the same. Someone is being violated. But we tend to separate child abuse from domestic violence. Is, is that a common thread? It is, and I think part of that is kind of an academic research thing. Both child abuse and domestic violence fall under family abuse as the overreaching category. And as we saw from the awful example of what happened in Arizona, where there was a a 10-year-old girl that was put in boxes, quote-unquote, punishment, oftentimes you can have abuse against a child done by both spouses or both parents or guardians without them abusing each other. So at times it does make sense to separate out child abuse from domestic violence. But frequently where there is domestic violence, there is also child abuse. And oftentimes the partner who's being abused in the domestic violence relationship may also be abusing the child as well. So again, there, there is sometimes benefit to separating them out, and it may help researchers in terms of defining the questions. And I think what clinicians need to remember is when they run across domestic violence or child abuse, they need to look for abuse in other members of the family as well. And by the same token, there is this presumption blindly so, that domestic violence is usually the male against the female. That's not the case, though, is it? No, it it can go both ways. And when you look at some of the statistics, and granted, you know, different studies ask the question slightly differently. So you do have to keep that in mind when looking at the numbers. About 20 to 30 percent of women will report being involved in some relation in their lifetime where they felt there was some degree of domestic violence, whether it be physical, sexual, or kind of emotional abuse. Men report roughly about 5 to 10% of them have been involved in a relationship where they've been abused. And abuse has been divided into kind of two categories, and this was first proposed by Johnson about 1995, and there's been a lot of further study kind of validating it, what we call intimate terrorism, where it's much more of a control, humiliation, and it occurs throughout the relationship, and then the notion of situational violence. And what they've kind of found is when you look at situational partner violence, you'll see women hitting and being physically abusive to men at around the same frequency. And again, there's some controversy in the literature here. So when I say this, I hope listeners will realize that this is an ongoing area of study, but that there are in situational violence, similar rates of male and female as female to male abuse. When you're looking at the intimate partner violence, though, usually it is the male being abusive towards the female. But you use the word situational. Does that mean a trigger brings it on? Um, Like you said earlier, there's a financial problem in the community. They're not working as well. Is that the nature of the situation or a drug abuse coming into a family life? Right. And that's usually what they mean is that it's more discrete episodes. They used to classically talk about the cycle of abuse as there would be the honeymoon period, there would be the building tension stage, then there would be the actual battering, and then you'd go back into a honeymoon type of situation. So you can see situational abuse along those lines, and then you can also see situational abuse due to an acute outside stressor where you don't have the tension building phase in between. So again, there could be loss of a job, could lead to an acute stressor, finding out about an affair, stressors of that nature. An abused child very often is stuck at home. But what about adults that are stuck in abusive relationships? Why do they stay? A lot of times there can be a lot of denial with it. So initially when it happens, especially if it's on an episodic course, even if it's a building episodic course, uh, a lot of times after the abuse occurs, the abuser will say, this was a one-time incident, I'm sorry, I'll change. 
So the partner feels that there's hope, uh, that they should give them a second chance, that they should stay for the good of the relationship themselves and their partner. As it progresses, you start seeing the motivations for staying change, such as they start to believe that they are worthless or that they can't make it on their own. They're worried about if they leave that the children will be harmed. There can be cultural things that play in, such as my mother went through this abuse and she stood by my father and they seem happier now in their older age. So maybe I can weather the storm or my religion would frown on it or the children do need a father figure, and if I leave, it would be harmful for them as well. And and hence the notion of rationalizing it. Yes. So often you'll see a lot of denial in the beginning, and you can still see denial later on, but you also see a lot more rationalization later on. Is there any difference in the degree of rationalization that occurs between physical abuse, sexual abuse, or psychological or emotional abuse? You know, I I hate making all or none statements because a lot of time it comes down to the individual and how they perceive it. I've seen patterns that have been described. I haven't seen them divided out, though, for each type of abuse. Let's take a step and look at it in a global manner. We know that there are, and it's a fascinating concept, at least to those of us in Western society, fascinating notion that some cultures actually justify and define abuse very differently than well than we do in the United States what is acceptable in our society is not acceptable in some societies or is the opposite is acceptable in other societies and how a man can treat a woman I'd like to hear your comments about the cultural differences because this is very intriguing and what's interesting is this cultures change people who may use the expression rule of thumb may not realize that that comes from a European notion that you could beat your wife as long as it was with an object that was no wider than your thumb. It's been part of Western culture as well. It's just over time, it's become less acceptable, fortunately. But when you surveyed parts of Africa or parts of Asia, Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, you'll oftentimes find populations that say there are times where it is appropriate for husbands to quote-unquote discipline their wives. And the transgressions that are appropriate can change. So if women are having an affair, that is seen as very appropriate. If women are neglecting the children, that's seen as an appropriate time for a husband to abuse their wife. But you can even find parts of the population where 30% of women will say it's appropriate for a husband to beat the wife if they miscook the meal or if they overcook the meal. So there are definitely cultural areas where it is accepted. And a lot of that can be due to the society they're in, the form of government they're in, but also how they interpret the religious scriptures. For example, Sharia law talks about being able to discipline your wife as long as you don't maim her. Now, again, a lot of scholars can read things differently, but people will oftentimes find areas of either tradition or religion and interpret them rigidly as a rationalization or a justification. And this can occur in in all societies. So much of abuse, at least the type of abuse that we tend to see in the media, seems to be related to a sense of entitlement on the part of the abuser and fear or subservience on the part of the abused. Is, is that too simple a, an explanation? I, I think sometimes it is, because I think a lot of the times that people stay, there is a degree of fear there, but again, they also have possibly higher notions as well, uh, that if I leave, I won't be able to help him. If I leave, I won't be able to help my children. So sometimes staying, there can also be, again, a rationalization or kind of a martyr complex involved as well. And also there's the notion that I don't deserve better. 
the emotional abuse has gone on for so long that they see this as something they deserve or they've brought on themselves. We tend also to overlook the fact that domestic violence partner abuse can also occur in the elderly. We obviously have some, some notions and statistics about that. It's, um, it's surprising because these are supposed to be our grandparents and they're supposed to be all settled and their, their lives fairly well worked out. But I guess it's not true. No, and I, I've seen some statistics that I believe, and I may be a tad off on the numbers, but about four to five out of every thousand couples over age 50 or 60 will experience partner abuse. And what you've got to ask yourself is, is this a new onset abuse or is this chronic abuse that's occurred over the whole course of the relationship? And unfortunately, some of the new onset abuse is related more towards mental illness such as a dementia or loss of the temporal lobes or nuanced substance abuse, and may not be as much related to kind of the classic long-standing pattern of domestic violence. How do we intervene? I mean, we have all these wonderful statistics, and they're helping us better understand the dimensions of the problem. What are some telltale signs that we should begin to suspect that there may be some abuse that's not being reported? Well, one of the big issues and areas where people have been trying to work on this is the notion of screening. Do we encourage asking at every visit? Do we have written things? Uh, I was recently talking with my fiance who notes that at her place of employment that there's a sign up in the bathroom that talks about domestic violence and where you can call if there's problems. So I think society is beginning to get the notion and is beginning to, at least in Western societies, clearly say this is wrong and you should make changes. And even some of the places we talked about, like Bangladesh, they've passed a lot of laws to try and make it clear that this is no longer acceptable. So one is on a large societal level, we have to make the change. The other is individual levels. If you see people who will never be seen alone, you see people who always refer to their partner or spouse before giving their own opinion or to see if their opinion is correct. Those can be signs of emotional abuse. You can definitely see signs of physical abuse, such as bruises, cuts, unexplained injuries. Unexplained absences from work often can be a tip-off. If you're in a doctor's office and the partner or spouse refuses to leave them alone, that can be a sign of abuse. Again, because domestic violence can also result in child abuse, if you see symptoms of abuse in children, you should also look to see if it's occurring in partners or spouse. So that's a very important way to kind of look at the whole picture of the individual to see if there's abuse going on. Then the question becomes, how do you stop the pattern or the cycle? And unfortunately, domestic violence is a lot like cigarette smoking. Women who have been in these long-term relationships report that they've considered leaving multiple times before they finally do. So if you suspect it, you need to keep talking, keep the dialogue open, but realize that the person may not be at the time to leave yet. So you want to try and think of it as, are they in a pre-contemplative stage, a contemplative stage, are they in the action stage? And depending where they are, you may want to do different interventions if you're a physician or a friend or, or even just an authority figure. And there are actually organizations and groups that actually help with this. For children, there are safe houses. A lot of bowling alleys have it, some restaurants have it, and so on, that people can go and stay there until the police can be called or one of the social service agencies can be called to, to step in and help out. 
because it becomes an issue. I know there is a very simple but very good screening program that says two questions. Have you ever felt unsafe at home? And has anyone at home ever hit you or tried to injure you in any way? If they say yes to that, it needs to be followed up. The problem is then what do you do about it? Yes. And my understanding, and again, this may have changed since I last checked, but five states in the country have mandatory reporting laws for domestic violence like they do for child abuse. The problem and the concern is that women are at the greatest risk of being killed when they try and leave their abuser. So there is one school of thought that we should screen for it and inform women about 1-800 numbers safety plans, if they're going to leave, what items they need to take with them, such as passports, photos, money, a picture of their abuser's abuser's car or truck, so if they see it parked, they can inform others. And then the other thought is, is if we try and force them out when they're not ready, we're just putting them at greater risk. We really need to try and come up with a systematic way to help people take the steps to protect themselves while at the same time not forcing their hands because we may put them in a greater risk when we do that. And again, it's good for physicians to know about what to discuss as a safety plan, what are the resources available such as legal defense funds, shelters, uh, public places that someone can go. And pretty much every state has a domestic violence hotline you can call or I believe there's even some national ones that can refer you to resources if you're not aware. There's a national domestic violence hotline. It's in the United States. It's 1-800-799-7233, 1-800-799-7233. And I'm sure most countries around the world, there is a similar service. One of the things, as you were talking, that comes to mind is that physicians should not do. They shouldn't necessarily just automatically recommend marriage counseling and they shouldn't automatically become intolerant of the patient or the victim because that's only going to isolate the person from going out for help and could make things worse. Right. Where there's episodes of physical violence actively occurring, and if you know the violence is occurring, marriage counseling is not the right thing to recommend. You want to get the person who's being abused away from the situation, let the abuser go through some counseling on his own first, and if at a later date and time they want to try and reconcile, that's where it can occur. But if you try and go through marriage counseling while they're still together, while the abuse is still occurring, what happens is, is something is discussed in the counseling, they come home, and then the person gets physically abused because the abuser says, you revealed this, you discussed this, you did this. So again, I don't want to say that you never do counseling, but you want to make sure the person is safe first. And if active physical and sexual abuse is going on where there's risk of harm and fatality, you want the person removed, not cured. And by the same token, it is incumbent of the doctor identifying or suspecting the abuse to be sensitive to the cultural background in which the person lives, where they're coming from, because to just recommend things from our particular cultural perspective may be rejected immediately by that person for reasons that we're not thinking about. They were never raised that way or some such thing. Yes. And again, where this can sometimes come into play is people may also think that certain family members are going to be allied when in fact they won't. For example, when you look at honor killings in parts of Asia, 
a lot of times they are actually carried out by members of the abused person's own family because they see them as bringing shame on the family for not following the husband or not living up to the marriage that they originally got into. So you do have to look at someone's culture. Culture can affect the reasons for staying. Culture could affect who they're willing to talk to or what's available to them to get out. And a lot of times what can be good resources is either contacting national centers for the individual's religion. There are several cultural groups set up specifically to address domestic violence in that culture. And the other thing is sometimes giving out information in their own name. For example, Florida has a series of domestic violence books called First Step which is written in both English, Spanish, and Creole. It's a way to kind of educate people who have been abused about what abuse is, what some of their rights are, why it is problematic. And the web address for that is www.fcadv.org, safety underscore planning dot php. Interesting, necessary, frightening material, but it warrants our time and it warrants our studying it so we can intervene. Dr. Ryan Hall is a psychiatrist from Central Florida, and obviously we've been talking about the nature and the scope of domestic violence. Dr. Hall, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you as well, and I just want to give out one more uh, website if I can. Uh, That's the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, which is www.ncadv.org. They should also be able to have resources and information there, both for physicians as well as for patients. Very good. Thank you very much, and have a good day. Thank you again.